0: Today's message is from our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. If you're a guest today, maybe you haven't been around, we're actually closing out a series called Irresistible. Don't sweat it. Don't get up and walk out. It's okay. Um, this is part number six of of Irresistible, our Irresistible. This today is the grand finale, okay? Everything so far has come to this moment. And uh, so we're excited that you're here. So if you have missed it, uh, I dare you to go back to our our website or uh, go to iTunes and listen to these podcasts. Um, Listen to every part of these podcasts because this has been one of the most powerful powerful appropriate series that we've ever done in this church I we've been preparing and setting up this series for a long time in fact when we did this series and I was breaking down the weeks I wasn't expecting us to I was expecting us to close this series out last week um Because of Easter Sunday. But then as I looked at the series, I thought, man, how appropriate it will be to close it out on Easter Sunday. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. But this series is so important when it comes to uh, rethinking our approach as it relates to reaching this generation, reaching the next generation, re-reaching this generation for the cause of Christ, Now, in this Irresistible series and throughout this message today, I'm going to give you a couple things to kind of help bring you up to speed if maybe you've missed this, which is no problem, but throughout this series, we've surveyed the entire Old Testament, and in doing that, uh, we've realized God's global plan for ancient Israel— Because God set up a covenant with ancient Israel, and that covenant, it's really important to understand that that covenant was for ancient Israel, and it was a temporary covenant, okay? So we've discovered God's uh, global plan for ancient Israel, we've discovered God's plan for you And so we've talked about three main covenants that hold the storyline of our Bible together. And that's God's covenant with Moses. A lot of people refer to that as the old covenant. There's God's covenant with Abraham. And I'm going to reference that a couple times this morning. And then, of course, last but certainly not least and the most important is God's covenant with you and anyone who chooses to participate in this covenant. Now... As we conclude this series, there's probably something I should have told you from the beginning, but maybe I left out. And it's that everything that we have talked about through this entire series has led up to this message right here. This very last message, and I've entitled this message this morning, The Event. Everybody say The Event. Have you ever been to a big event? I mean, like, you know, the event, like a Super Bowl. Anybody ever been to Super Bowl here? <laughs> we are all in the same boat, some of us. <laughs> it's just a dream. One day, we, you know, we never actually expect it to happen, but, you know, we dream about it. But um, well, I'm going to preach on, I'm going to speak on the event today. And, and I'm, I'm sure that being here on Easter Sunday, some of you are trying to figure out what I'm talking about because you have no clue what that event might be. That was a joke, um, the events, the resurrection, for those of you that didn't. But how many of you remember the last time that you actually prayed for, don't, don't raise your hand, but you remember the last time that you prayed for somebody by name who you knew they were kind of away from God, they were far Uh, uh, from God or how many of you remember the last time that you invited someone to church uh, someone that you really felt like should be here and be a part of church and and if it hasn't bothered you until I brought it up then you might find what follows a little bit strange or maybe even perhaps heretical maybe you're one of those people who really 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 care about your community Maybe you're one of those people who really, your heart is broken for the faithlessness of your friends and the faithlessness of your family or the faithlessness of your coworkers. If you're concerned about the faith of the next generation, then maybe you're open this morning to reevaluating our approach to faith because maybe it's a little bit different than how we were raised how we looked at things. I was talking to my mom and dad about it this week, and I told them, I said, I need to apologize to you guys because they were pastors, so I grew up in a preacher's home. But my dad, uh, he stopped pastoring. He resigned his church when I was in the seventh grade, and we moved to a camp, and, and he started leading a Bible school. And so he stopped pastoring for me when I was in seventh grade. So when I talk about how I grew up, And I'm talking about an organized religion. I'm talking about the environment, the landscape of every church and every pastor around me associated with me, how I grew up. And so maybe uh, you'd be interested in maybe reevaluating that approach, your approach to faith. Because what follows next to you might sound like a breath of fresh air. In this final leg of our journey through the Irresistible series, I want to lay out an approach to what Peter says is the hope that is within us. Everybody say that. The hope that is within us. In a culture where the Bible says or the scripture teaches may at best be considered statements of fact, not an argument for or against anything. In a culture that accepted what the Bible has to say, those phrases really had traction. Some of you remember that because when I was growing up, it didn't matter if, if this person was a believer or not. You would hear people say all the time, yeah, but the Bible says, you ever hear that? But the Bible says, and when I grew up, that carried a lot of weight. I didn't know that a lot of people were saying, but the Bible says, and then they would give me a lot of scripture that actually wasn't really what the Bible said, um, or it was really twisted from what the Bible actually said, or it's not what the Bible meant. But, man, that thing had a lot of weight. You would hear that all the time. But let me tell you, whether you believe this or not, and some of you realize it, those days are long gone. Okay? We live in a day and age, a generation where You can use the Bible says and the Bible teaches. This generation doesn't really care. It doesn't carry the same weight that it once did. Now you should know that most people who have walked away from faith. Walked away for reasons that had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. They walked away from a version of Christianity that could really be compared to a house of cards. And here's why I say that. If someone came along and they convinced them that the earth wasn't created in six literal days, then maybe they begin to wonder, then did Jesus actually raise in three? And so everything now associated with their Bible becomes questionable to them. If if someone could come along and convince you that any part of the 66 books that are in our Bible were untrue or they could be proven to be false or twisted, then to some people that means the entire Bible isn't true. And if the Bible isn't true, then maybe the version of Christianity that I grew up with isn't true. And so all of a sudden, this whole house of cards comes tumbling down. Now, I know this to be the case because I'm obsessed with deconversion stories, Stories of people who've left the faith. Stories of, have you ever talked to some people who used to be really into faith, used to be believers, and now they're not? I'm I'm obsessed with people like that because I want to know why. What happened? What did you do? Um, I'm obsessed with deconversion stories, stories of people who left the faith. And the reasons that people give for why they left the faith are all over the map. I mean, you name it, And there's some funny ones out there. I I Google searched this a little bit. And you would not believe. You wouldn't believe some of the blogs of why people have left the faith. They burned their tongue on the coffee. I was done with church. I was done. If they're not considering me. How dangerous this. What if my son or daughter had to taste that coffee? I'm done with it. By God right? That sounds crazy. That's one of the ridiculous ones there, but they're all over the place. But here's the thing. For a majority of the people, it comes down to one thing. Belief. They just don't believe anymore. But this raises an extraordinarily important question for us. Believe what? What did they believe that they no longer believe That left them believing that they're no longer believers. Okay? What was it? What did they, what exactly did these post-believers find impossible to continue believing in? What do deconverted people believe that is impossible to believe in the first place? Have you ever asked them that question? Have you ever talked to people with that question? Now, in some of the conversations I've had with deconverted people, I've never, ever heard a deconversion story ever involving disbelief and something essential to following Jesus. Of all the stories of people that I've talked to, people who they say, I'm done with church, I'm I'm done with the faith, I'm done with this whole God thing, most people, it's never, ever back-related to Jesus. It's everything else. I've talked to plenty of people who found it impossible to believe certain things that they were taught. How they were growing up. Especially when they start comparing. They, they grow up and they were taught this set of rules. Then they have a good friend who was taught a whole other set of rules. They become good friends. They start comparing and they go, wait a minute. That's not what I was taught. Well, that's not what I was taught. And you start realizing one of us is wrong. Or are we or are we both right or are we both wrong and all of a sudden everything starts getting twisted things that they were taught that were essential to faith they're often people are often shocked and sometimes relieved when I share with those people that I actually don't believe the same thing they don't believe I'm talking about deconverted people who are telling me what they don't believe and why they've left the faith. Sometimes they're taken back when I go, I don't believe that either. Now, what deconverts might find impossible to believe eventually intersects with something in or about the Bible. And when it's usually in the Bible, the Old Testament is typically the culprit of why somebody doesn't believe. They see this angry God, this God who they don't really understand. They don't understand the old covenant. They don't understand why things happen the way they happen. They don't understand, we've talked about it throughout this series, that Kings were never God's plan. God never had a plan for them to have kings. The people wanted kings, so God gave it to them. It was never God's plan to have a temple. So there are all these things. It was never God's plan. God just kind of went with it. He went with the flow. But when he went with the flow, he had expectations. If this is what you want, then you're going to follow the rules. And so a lot of people get confused when they look, and their disbelief their lack of belief starts stemming from things in the Old Testament that they really don't even understand. And that brings us to some really, really, really good news as Christians. And it's probably something that a lot of Christians don't know, and it's this. Christianity can stand on its own two new covenant, nail-scarred, resurrection, first-century feet. Come on, come on, one more, you, I got like two, they're like, I don't know if this is a clapping moment or not, but that sounded good, I'm going to say it again, and I want you to clap on this one, all right, Christianity can stand on its own two, new covenant, now scarred, resurrection, first century feet, yeah, whoo! Maybe next week, TJ, if I could work, if you could get on the screens an applause thing, and I'll just just hit the button, and it'll say applause. Because that was a good thing to applaud. Because, listen, our Christian faith does not need to be propped up by Jewish scriptures. Uh Uh-oh, I'm starting to meddle. I'm meddling in some of your business now. Listen, in a post-Christian context like ours, our faith sometimes... Easy, Pastor Jared. Sometimes it does better without Old Covenant support. I said it. I said it. Now, this wasn't the case in the first century. And herein lies all the confusion. See, Jesus' apostles, his original followers, appropriately leveraged the Old Testament... Okay? So let me, let me break this down. Jesus' original followers, they went back and they leveraged the Jewish scriptures so that they could teach and preach the new covenant to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Okay? So they used what these people, the law that these people had been under for generation and generation after generation. They leveraged those scriptures to teach their brothers and sisters that were Jewish. But, when it came to the Gentiles, which that's you and me, okay? We're, we aren't Jews. We weren't born under the law. We've never been under the law. Amen. There's another good play. applause right there, but with that, you're too late. That's okay. <laughs> we've, we've never been under the law. We weren't born under the law. So, <coughs> excuse me, we don't have to leverage the Old Testament. Jewish scriptures so that we can teach you why we're coming out of that, we're the Gentiles. And for the Gentiles, they didn't leverage the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. They leveraged a far more recent event, the resurrection. Yeah. Woo, yeah, that's good. I didn't even have to put it on the screen. They leveraged something more current, something more, something that they actually witnessed. Do you see the difference? Think about it. When you've watched a man crucified, when you watch him hang on the cross, when you watch him breathe his last breath and die, and you watch them take his dead, lifeless body off the cross and bury it, and then three days later, you're having breakfast with this guy. (laughs) <laughs> you don't need ancient props and Old Testament scriptures to tell the story of why you believe what you believe. Mm, some of you fix to start preaching with me. That's okay. We got this hole up front if you need it. Now, unlike Peter and Paul and the rest of the guys, we have an additional advantage as well. Many, perhaps, most non-Christians and (coughs) post-Christians, excuse me, (coughs) have a favorable view of Jesus. Uh, At least, certainly, they have a more favorable view of Jesus than they do the Old Testament. While a lot of people today, unfortunately, they don't see Jesus as divine. They don't see him as a God. But most people today at least recognize Jesus as Someone whose life is worth mimicking. Someone whose life is worth following, right? Because they can see that he was a great, great man. Now we, as believers, we understand he was divine. We believe it, but some people just don't get that. In other words, people don't generally leave the church or faith because of Jesus. That's what I'm trying to, to say. Jesus is not the stumbling block. The church has done a good job putting everything else, making a bunch of stumbling blocks our own. Jesus isn't the stumbling block. We put all kinds of rules and expectations and and all these regulations on what we expect and the church has really become more of the stumbling block. But it's really not Jesus. And if you talk to most people who have left the faith, most of them will say why they left and 99.999% of them won't say Jesus. In a letter... To first century Christians, the Apostle Peter told the readers to always be prepared with an explanation as to why we put our hope in Jesus. So here's a great question. (coughs) Why do we put our hope in Jesus? What is your explanation to people? We call this the apologetics, defending your faith. What is your apologetics to why you believe? What do you tell people when they ask you that question? But to answer this question, I think we should take our cue from Jesus' original hope-filled followers. Peter, for example. Why did Peter choose to unfollow Jesus after choosing to follow him? Why did Peter, who followed Jesus, decide on the night that he was arrested, he decided to unfollow Jesus? Why did he choose later to go back and follow Jesus? To answer that question, it was simple. An empty tomb and breakfast on the beach. That's why. Peter decided on the night he was arrested to unfollow. And then all of a sudden, just a few days later, he decides to follow again. Why? An empty tomb, breakfast on the beach. Peter, Andrew, James, John didn't decide to follow Jesus because of something they read. They decided to follow Jesus because of something they saw. They saw something. And because they saw something, they decided to... Here, maybe this will help. Let me put it in in a different form for you. What would happen if you lost your birth certificate? Nothing, right? I mean, your birth certificate documents you, but it didn't create you. It doesn't sustain you, right? I mean, some of you, when I ask that question, some of you are like, I don't even know where my birth certificate is. <laughs> I hadn't seen that thing in a long time since Little League used to ask for it when you signed up. I hadn't seen it since then. Um, Jenica just asked me the other day. She's like, Dad, do you have any clue where my birth certificate is? I don't know where your birth certificate is. Or, or let me put it another way. <laughs> I know it's somewhere in the house. Should be. I think. We'll find it eventually. But listen, here's another question. What would happen to you if you discovered an error on your birth certificate? Nothing. Nothing. For the same reasons. Okay? How, you're, for the same re- how you respond, how would you respond if someone claimed that you didn't exist Because of an error on your birth certificate. Right? How would you respond to someone who refused to believe that you were who you say you are? They refused to believe that you even existed because there was an error on your birth certificate. Or they refused to believe you existed until you presented to them a perfect birth certificate. I know this is crazy, but this convoluted thinking mirrors the way a lot of people think about their faith. Consequently, as their view of the Bible goes, so goes their faith. One more for you. Which came first? The chicken or the egg? No, I'm just kidding. Which came first? The resurrection or the written accounts that document the resurrection? (laughs) See, Well, it's obvious that the resurrection, because the documents that documented the event can't pre-exist the event that they documented. Okay? The New Testament documents are kind of like a birth certificate of sorts. They document the birth of the church. They document the birth of of Christianity, but most importantly, they document the resurrection of Jesus. So, when your mama's friends, this is not a yo mama joke, when your mama's friends came to visit her in the hospital the day after you were born, they didn't come to see your birth certificate. They came to see you. Okay? Okay. When my mom had me 21 years ago, people didn't go to the hospital to see my birth certificate. They wanted to see this beautiful red-headed baby. This God's gift, this little chunk of love. Now, while, listen to this. Now, while the text included in our New Testament, play a very, very, very important role in helping us understand what it means to follow Jesus. They are not the reason that we follow Jesus. Now, I know I'm I'm, I'm tiptoeing around some of your feet right now, and you're not sure where I'm going exactly, but we don't believe because of a book. We believe because of the event that inspired the book. We believe because of this incredible event that inspired a book. To be written about it. Let me put it another way. The Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity created the Bible. Okay. Now think about that. The Christian faith existed 200 plus years before there was a the Bible. Now the documents were being written throughout that whole time period. But it did not exist before there was a the resurrection There was no Christianity before the resurrection. It didn't exist. Now, here's something that maybe our Sunday school teachers never told us if they even knew in the first place. But when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to Jesus to take his lifeless body down off the cross, there were no Christians, there were no Jesus followers. Sympathizers? Absolutely. But at that moment in history, nobody believed Jesus was the Son of God. Nobody, when Jesus uttered his last words, when he breathed his last breath, believed that he was the Son of God. Everybody who had believed at that moment when Jesus died, stopped believing. Questions started popping up. Everybody started asking questions. I mean, after all, if Jesus couldn't keep himself alive, then how were they gonna keep this movement about Jesus alive? Besides, why bother? The fact that Nicodemus and Joseph were taking this lifeless body down from a Roman cross was evidence enough for everybody to know that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be. Here's maybe something else that we didn't learn in Sunday school. Jesus' teachings were not the driving force behind Jesus' movement. Jesus was the driving force behind this movement. It wasn't what he taught. It was who he was. See, is, most of his teachings, he's teaching to an old covenant people. And he's transitioning them out of where they had been their whole entire for 1800 years. And so he's comparing and relating and he's pulling them across into this transition period. So it wasn't what Jesus taught that made it so powerful. It was who Jesus was, who he claimed to be. It was his outrageous claims about himself that kept the band together and kept the movement moving. Case in point, after a rather disturbing conversation um, and and confusing message, and we talked about this a little bit earlier throughout this series. um, I'll, I'll relate it a little bit later. But Jesus starts talking about eating his own body. And he starts talking about drinking his own blood. Did you realize that at that moment that a lot of Jesus' followers decided to unfollow? Did did you know that? I mean, Jesus starts talking about eating his own body and drinking his own blood. Weird, right? Who does he think he is? This is crazy. Not to mention, he's even screwing up the Passover the Passover, you, nobody puts baby in a corner, okay? Nobody messes with the Passover. You're messing with the Passover. And so a lot of Jesus' followers at that moment, they decided to unfollow. So Jesus looks at his 12 that are there with him, and he asks them, do any of you want to unfollow? Are any of you going to leave me also? <laughs> And Peter spoke up. But it's what Peter didn't say that's just as instructive as what Peter did say. What Peter didn't say is, Lord, to whom shall we go? Nobody teaches like you do. Your stories are so compelling. I mean, the the parables you give, Jesus, your storytelling is unparalleled. Nobody like you, Jesus. That's not what he said. Peter and the boys didn't decide to stay with Jesus because of what he taught. They decided to stay with Jesus in spite of what he taught. Listen, he's telling them that everything that they had believed their whole life was different. I mean, he starts changing rules. He starts taking laws and changing laws around. He starts saying that you can sum up all the laws in the old covenant under two laws. Love God and love people. That's crazy talk. So they weren't following him because of what he taught. They were following him in spite of what he taught. They were following because of who he claimed to be. They hung around because of who he said he was. But here's Peter's actual response. In John chapter 6, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, I've talked about this throughout this series, and we're going to hit this real fast, but I want to talk about when Peter says that word eternal life, immediately we typically go to the afterlife, right? We go to life after death, and that's not what Peter's saying here. What Peter's saying, this word is translated aeonios zoe, and if you go and you look and you download a Bible app or something, you look in uh, the Greek lexicon of this, this is what it actually says, and I put it exactly the way it says it. Aeonios means a human lifetime or full age of life. Zoe, meaning emphatically and in the messianic sense, to enjoy real life. For example, to have true life and worthy of the name, active, blessed, endless, in the kingdom, life. Zoe. So when Peter says, you have the words of eternal life, what he's saying is, you have the full life, eternal life, abundant life. You can tell us how to live, how to get the most out of our life, real life, right now. And when, when we start talking about eternal life, a lot of Christians don't understand that eternal life starts right now. Eternal life starts right the day you choose to follow and believe in, the, in, in who he is. Your eternal life begins at that moment. So he goes on and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. There it is. The reason that they stuck with Jesus is because of who they believed he was, the Holy One of God. They stuck with him because they believed. Now, you see, to keep this Jesus Jesus movement moving was very contingent upon keeping Jesus alive. So when Jesus died... For these followers, hope died as well. There was no believers after the crucifixion. Now, if you're not convinced of this, think about it this way. As everybody, even his most devout followers, expected Jesus to do what all dead people do. Stay dead. Okay? Okay? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they prepared Jesus' body for burial because they expected him to stay buried. That's why they prepared his body for burial. They expected him to stay buried. Easter Sunday morning, nobody was standing outside of the tomb going, (laughs) 10. No, wait a minute, God. Nine. Stop your counting. Eight. That's a champion reference for those of you old school Carmen people. Eight, seven, his fingers are twitching, eyes are like it was six. That's not what Easter Sunday was like. They expected him to stay dead. He died. They put him in the tomb, they wrapped him up. They expected him to stay dead. In fact, a group of women left home just before dawn that day and they went to go, the Bible says, to re prepare Jesus' body for burial. I don't know why exactly they were going to go redo it. We can maybe assume that, that Joseph and Nick were in a rush and they did it wrong. Or we can assume that they were men and the women needed to go redo it. We don't know exactly why they needed to redo it. But for some reason, the, these ladies got up before dawn. before They're like, we need to hurry up and get to that tomb and we need to fix it. However, these broken hearted women expected Jesus to still be in the tomb. They expected his body to start decomposing and then would collect his bones and place, place them in an estuary. Nobody was planning to keep the movement moving. Nobody was planning to keep the dream alive. But then again, nobody was expecting no body. Mm, the upper room. It starts getting good right here. Even when they found no body, nobody believed it. They believed that somebody came and stole the body, which would explain no body to everybody. Remember, at this particular moment in history. There are no Christians, there's no church, just broken hearted, delusion Jesus followers. Until a handful of followers encountered, encountered their risen Savior and they decided to re-follow. There's this moment they decided to re-follow. And when they did, something new was unleashed. Something new was unleashed to the world. Something that would stand alone. Something that was birthed in a nation for a nation. This was actually the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham. That, That the whole world, the entire world would be blessed through this nation. This is a fulfillment of that covenant. Birthed in a, in a nation for a nation, something forecasted, something foreshadowed, forcing a new movement, fueled by a new covenant and guided by a new governing ethic. The resurrection signaled the inauguration of the ecclesia, which is the assembly, the congregation of Jesus. We call it the church. Dun, dun, dun. This should actually, and this must be the answer to Peter's question as he asks us to be ready to give an answer for why we have our hope, why we put our hope. This is the answer. This was their answer. We, they, they said we put our hope in Jesus because of the resurrection, because of the event. We saw it happen. This has to be our answer as well. When people demand, they want to know Why? Why do you have faith? Why do you put your faith in this God? Because he rose from the grave. Now listen, our approach to faith in zero, no way, not a zilch, diminishes the importance of the scripture. In fact, it's just the opposite. The resurrection serves as our apologetic Or our arguments for the reliability of our Christian scriptures. Here's why I say that. The Christian faith began with the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, it began with his birth. Not a birth certificate. Okay? His resurrection was the beginning. Not the certificate. Our faith began when a handful of followers watched him die. Watched him taken down from the cross. Watched him put in a tomb. And then they watched him come back to life. The beginning of our faith. Right there. And just as the resurrection is the reason that they give of why they have their hope, that also is our reason. Just to state it more directly, we don't believe because the Bible says, we believe because Jesus rose. That's why we believe. That's why we are, come on, you can do better than that. And that's not a clap for Pastor Jared, that's a clap of why we believe. We believe because he rose. He rose. He did it. He did it. Now, why do we believe that Jesus rose? Because the Bible says so? No. No. It's way better than that. We don't believe just because the Bible says so. We believe because Matthew said so. Oh, and so did Mark. He said so. And then Luke. He said so. And then John. John also said so. And Peter. He said so. James, the brother of Jesus. He also said so. Paul, he came to believe that it was true. And somebody put all of these, put four of them, called them the Gospels, put all the rest of them together. And we call that the New Testament. We believe, not just because the Bible says so, but all these accounts of people who saw it happen. They said so. But it gets even better than that. Because once somebody accepts the historicity of the resurrection... You don't generally have to convince them to lean into what Jesus said or what he did, because usually when they believe that about Jesus, they become fascinated with the backstory, which is the Jewish scriptures. People want to know the backstory. They want to know. So if people can first become fascinated with Jesus, then they become really interested in the backstory. And then putting the backstory in proper contents, it explains a lot of things. Really, really powerful. The moral of the story is shouldn't should be quite encouraging to all of us especially to your unbelieving friends. Your unbelieving friends, listen to this, don't have to accept the Old Testament as reliable or even the New Testament as inspired as a precursor for embracing Jesus as Savior. Jesus as Savior comes first. Everything begins to echo off of that one statement right there. Your skeptical, unbelieving friends don't have to accept the authority of a book before accepting the historicity of the resurrection. To state it in rather delicate terms, the resurrection is the horse, the Bible is the cart, Unfortunately for a lot of people, they grew up with this particular cart in front of this particular horse. And it doesn't work that way. A lot of people have inherited a text-first-based faith. So you grow up first believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Well, because the Bible says so. It's all about text-first. But once upon a lifetime ago... Our faith was event-based first. Then it became text-based. It was event-based first. Before these gospels had been put together, before this New Testament collaboration of all these accounts were beautifully and perfectly put together, before that, there was an event. And our faith was based off that event The event that changed everything. Perhaps we should start showing off the baby from Nazareth. Instead of trying to convince everybody that his birth certificate is accurate. Now if you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around all of this. I understand. Because there's a lot of people who have grown up with a Bible first, Jesus second kind of preaching and teaching. We've made the Bible God and not Jesus. The event happened and the event inspired this beautiful, powerful, awesome book we call the Bible. All off of the events that happened at resurrection. But this order of things explains why especially in this generation we have such a difficulty doing ministry outside of the church. Because to a lot of people, they're not really that interested in the Bible. Somebody has told them something or something has contradicted in their life. Or this friend said that and that friend said this. They used to go to this church. They taught that. They used to go to this church. They taught that. And they used to go to this church. So now they're so confused. They don't even know what they believe. Because this pastor and this pastor, they don't believe it. So why can't they just be friends? Why do there have to be so many denominations? Why has there got to be a Baptist, a Methodist, a Lutheran, Church of Christ, church, Pentecostal, Assembly God, you know? Why all these denominations? Somebody's wrong. Somebody's right. Listen, when it's about an event, then it doesn't matter. It's got to be event-based first. Event-based first. Man, isn't that awesome? Event-based first. That's why most educated people have an opinion of what the Bible isn't. See, back in the day, especially as I was growing up, people would come to church or Bible studies with this blank slate. They were ready. Tell me whatever. That's why you have so many people going around. Well, the Bible says this, and they're quoting really powerful sayings or proverbs that aren't actually even Bible scriptures. Come on. You've heard it, right? You may not have heard it because you might have believed it. I don't know. But, but that's what happens. But nowadays, you have people coming into your churches and Bible studies with full slates they're prepared, they're ready. They're ready to argue with you because they've stu- they know why they can prove this wrong or that wrong or this his- history- historical moment in time. As we've seen, there is a first century precedent for doing so. When scientific claims and archaeological discoveries threaten to undermine the credibility of the Old Testament, Christians oftentimes stand up, feel compelled to rise up and to defend it, or they decide to look the other way because they might see something that begins to undermine their own faith and how that they grew up. But honestly, both responses feed a false narrative. Our faith, listen, does not tinker on the brink of extinction based on archaeological or the history of the Old Testament. Anyone who lost faith in Jesus because they lost faith in a historical or archaeologically credible uh, story in the Old Testament they actually lost faith unnecessarily. No reason to lose faith over that. The faith of Jesus' earliest followers did not rest in a historically archaeologically or scientifically accurate book and yours shouldn't either their faith rested first and foremost on the event that they watched happen with their own eyes they didn't argue around, well, this belief is this or this, this. And Moses said, Joshua said, and Elisha and Elijah said that They didn't argue over, was the sun out? Was that at daytime or morning time? Was it noon? Was Christmas actually on the 25th? Or was it on the, was, we don't even celebrate Christmas Day on Christmas Day. The Easter Bunny is all about uh, Easter. This doesn't make any, and all of a sudden, there's all these big arguments. Not in the early first century believers, it was all about the event. When skeptics bring out the violence and the supposed misogyny and the scientific and historical unverif- unverifiable claims of the Hebrew Bible, instead of trying to defend those claims, we should just shrug our shoulders, give them the best ah, confused look, and go, I don't know. I don't even know why you're bringing this up. It has nothing to do with my faith. My faith isn't based on any of that. Peter's faith wasn't based on any of that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, their faith wasn't based on any of that. Paul's faith wasn't based on any of that. Catherine's faith wasn't based on any of that. Catherine? Who's Catherine? He's just throwing out random names. Come on. Catherine was an above average 10th grade student who recently transitioned from a prominent Christian school to a really large public high school now Andy Stanley who wrote this book irresistible he doesn't tell this story in the book he says it on a video but he tells this story he says that when he was getting ready for this book he gave the book to Catherine's mom and he asked her to read and critique the manuscripts for irresistible she said okay no problem so she began to read and critique the manuscripts Catherine came in one day she said mom what are you reading She told her, Catherine goes, can I read it? She said, sure, you can read it. So she started reading through it. Fast forward a few months later, Catherine finds herself in honors biology. Okay, her grades are through the roof. She is doing incredible. And all of a sudden, for the first time in Catherine's life, she is confronted with evolution through Darwinism. Through natural selection. And, and she's never been in this place before. She had been taught creationism and was armed with just a few basic, rather simplistic arguments against Darwinism. Catherine's biology teacher knew that she had transferred from a Christian high school, assumed correctly that all of this was really new to her, really kind of out there to her. So to his credit, two different times, he pulled Catherine to the side privately, and he said, listen, I know this is all kind of crazy to you. Um, Your grades are great. Your grades are through the roof. But how are you faring? And both times, the first two times, she smiled. She said, I'm fine. It's fine. (laughs) And so they went on. Her grades just continue to be at the top of the class. Towards the end of the semester, he asked a third time. He says, Catherine, I know this is all new to you, but how are you handling it personally? Are you okay? Because I know this has got to mess with you because everything that you've been taught your entire life, I'm kind of messing with it. Catherine didn't launch into a defense of creationism or a critique of Darwinism. She said this. I find it all very fascinating. But to be honest, none of this has anything to do with the foundation of my faith. And she was right. She was right. She's both exceptional and the exception because see... Our approach to preaching and teaching and writing and evangelism that most people saw modeled and consequently inherited is perfectly designed for a culture that no longer exists. It doesn't exist anymore. The Bible says doesn't carry the same weight that it used to. That's not our go-to for reaching someone. That's not the foundation of our faith. It doesn't carry the same weight maybe it did when you and I were growing up. The early church leaders, they showed us the way forward. They showed us how to reach people without trying to leverage something in the old scriptures. And they did it by putting all of their eggs in one basket. The Easter basket. They leveraged the event. They leveraged the resurrection. The time has come for us as a church to do the same thing. When you ask people why they believe or where their faith comes from, like Peter's asking, where's your faith come from? A lot of people, their answers are all over the map with that too. They're not real sure where their faith. a lot of it comes from, well, my mom and dad when I was little, I was raised and blah, 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 and they don't really understand where their faith, I am trying to give you the cleft notes, the cheat, behind the scenes, I'm trying to help you cheat on this exam this morning, okay, here's the answers, I'm giving you the answers, you can write it down if you want, because there's going to be an exam, the answer to this question of why we put our faith and our hope is in the event. There was an event that took place, and all around the world, right now, in churches everywhere, we're celebrating this event. And if we genuinely care about the next generation, if we genuinely care about our kids or our grandkids, if we genuinely care about all the people that are not in the building this morning, then we need to learn to reevaluate our approach and understand that we need to leverage the event. Leverage what happened that we celebrate on this day. The Apostle Paul who was more willing to adjust his approach, he summed it up perfectly when he wrote these words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its Blessings. Wow. By all possible means. I by all possible means. I, I have done, I have changed my approach. I am looking at things different than the way I've always looked at them, the way I've always seen them, the way I've always believed. I'm looking, I've adjusted things just a little bit. I will do whatever I can so that people can see the good news, which is the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus Christ. And the event is that he was dead, and now today he is still alive. Let's make our faith irresistible again. See, in the early church, as the church began to roll, faith was irresistible. Jesus was irresistible. People came running. The Bible says that the numbers were growing every day. And this is before there was a, the Bible. They had accounts and they had written, written documents of accounts that they would use and they would begin to teach. But they used their voices, the words of their testimony. And they begin to tell the stories of what they saw with their own eyes. And these accounts have been beautifully put together for us. So that we can know exactly what happened. Let's get back to this firm foundation that was discovered by the early church. The firm foundation that birthed a version of faith that was stronger than Roman steel. And that was tougher than Roman nails. A version that the ancient world found to be irresistible. That's the faith that we have to have. To do that we have to always keep our eyes on the event today. See, next Sunday, we're going to come back to church. All of you, right? We're going to come back to church next Sunday, and we're going to walk in, and the band's going to be playing. Pastor Jonathan's going to be jumping and dancing, and we're going to have a good time. And you know what we're celebrating? The event. Seven days after it happened, and then the next week as we roll into May, May rolls in, first Sunday of May and our band's gonna be singing and dancing and jumping. Eddie's gonna be shredding on the guitar and you know what we're celebrating that day? The event. And then all throughout May we're gonna do that and then come June, summertime, we're gonna switch it up and we're gonna sing and we're gonna dance and we're gonna play and we're gonna celebrate the event. But here's what's funny is when we're not at church on Sundays and, and I'm I come here on Mondays or Tuesdays or Wednesdays or Thursdays or Fridays and I, I bow my head and I talk to God a little bit. You know what I'm celebrating? The event. Every day of the week, 365 days a year, there's one thing that just impounds, pounds, pounds my, on my mind. There's one thing that drives me one thing that drives me see and it's not trying to teach people this teach it's see hell's been defeated death has been defeated sin has been defeated that's done but what drives me now is so that people can have that eternal abundant life that full life there's no reason you should walk around in depression There's no reason you should walk around with anxiety. There's no reason you should walk around wondering why your life exists or why you've you've come to this. He came, and when He rose from the grave, what He unleashed to us, I don't know that we'll ever fully understand until the day we meet Him face to face till the day that we stand there we're never we can stand here and we can preach and we can cry and we can do whatever we want but I don't know that we'll ever understand the magnitude that John three sixteen says he loved us so much that he God himself he manifested himself as a man and he came to this earth and he chose to die he didn't have to do it daddy God didn't make him do it they were one and the same they are the same he chose to die because he understood that this flawed system that we had wasn't working anymore he never intended us to have this messed up system and so he said you know what I'm gonna make this right I'm going to make this right, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to pay for everybody's sin. I'm going to be the sacrifice. In fact, the Bible says this, that what priests had been trying to do for generations through the sacrificing of of animals, Christ did through one sacrifice. One sacrifice. He did it. He paid for it all. You want to tell me you can think of a greater event than that? You want to know why next Sunday is just going to be as big as this Sunday? Because I'm still buzzing off the event. And the next Sunday, I'm still buzzing off that event. And the next Sunday and the next Sunday, Christmas, I'm buzzing off the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. Man, that event changed my life. That event changed my life. I don't walk around with my head down. I don't walk around with guilt and shame. None of that. I'm freed. He set me free. And I see Jesus like I've never seen Jesus before. Thank you. Thank you, God, for the event. Bow your heads for just a moment. God, I I pray that we understand fully who you are and what you did. God, I, I pray right now this morning that there may be some that are in here that they don't know you really. They, they don't understand exactly who you are. God, but you've given them a free gift of life. You came in and, and you died and you paid a price once and for all sin. So God, I pray today that their eyes are open maybe for the first time. And they begin to see maybe for the first time that you have given them the gift of eternal life and that starts today an abundant life real life real fulfillment of the best life possible I pray they grasp that and understand that Jesus